Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. This evening, we're going to be looking at the story of John the Baptist. We began this story a couple of weeks ago. John the Baptist shows up onto the scene, and he is baptizing people out in the wilderness, performing um, sort of a ritual purification to ready the hearts of the people for one who would come after him. And because so many people had been uh, going out into the wilderness to hear his teaching, this caused the ire and the consternation of the religious leaders who sent an envoy out to ask him if he was Elijah or if he was the prophet or if he was even the Messiah. People had no real categories in which to put John the Baptist. And in this passage, we're continuing on to see uh, who John the Baptist is and, and what he is saying specifically about Jesus. As those envoys came to him, he emphatically said, I am not the Messiah. I am not Elijah. I am not the prophet. But there is one who is coming after me. And I am to prepare his way. This is John's work was to, um, to prepare the way for Jesus to show up. This is John chapter 1, beginning in verse 29, picking up that story. It says, The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The word of God for the people of God. So around the turn of the 20th century, there was a Russian playwright and author named Anton Chekhov. According to Wikipedia, there was some hyperbolic statement about how Chekhov was one of the most notable fictional authors of this period, specifically with the genre of the short story. How we know Chekhov, however, is from some of his commentary on how to put together a gripping story. Uh, this line actually came up in a book that I was reading not too long ago, but it, it pops up every here and there, uh, and it's this. Chekhov says, remove everything that has no relevance to the story. If you say in the first chapter that there is a rifle hanging on the wall, in the second or third chapter, it absolutely must go off. If it's not going to be fired, it shouldn't be hanging there. 
Chekhov is attempting to give constructs for authors with which to write their stories and saying there are no frivolous details. If you are attempting in your creative English class to write a story, and you're just throwing in every sort of adjective that you know and all sorts of synonyms and things just to flesh out the story, this, according to him, would be atrocious because if you're just throwing in details that don't need to be there, then you're taking away from the plot of your story. One of my Bible professors, somewhere along, along the way, said something similar. He said, there are no free motifs in the Bible. Meaning, when you read, there are things that you should be taking note of as you go along. Now, for us, this doesn't usually inform how we read the Bible. Instead, how we view good television or good film or good books this is something that we should be aware of. In fact, one article that I saw said, if you really want to destroy your movie-watching habits, think about Chekhov's gun. The things that you see in the screen that will later come into play if the screenwriter knows what he or she is doing. It's the box cutter in the opening frame of an episode of Breaking Bad that will later at the end of the episode be used in an act of violence. It's the lawnmower on Mad Men, which is introduced in the beginning of the, the episode that is later driven over someone's foot at the end of the episode. I'm sorry that all of my examples are pretty dark. They're pretty macabre, but we can, we can get past that. I don't know if you can see this. It's pretty dark. But this is the baseball bat hanging on the wall in one of M. Night Shyamalan's masterpiece works, Signs. In the beginning, you see what's happening and you hear about Merrill and you know his story, but you don't know how it will all be pieced together until the end of the movie. If you have not seen Signs, please do that. I was watching some clips just to make sure I knew what I was talking about today and I was almost just going to put the sermon prep off to the side and spend an hour and a half watching this film in preparation. But it was, it, was a, it was an incredible movie, and there's things that are seen in the beginning that come to play at the end of the film. For anyone that's read or watched Harry Potter, there's examples of Chekhov's gun all over the place because J.K. Rowling does not have frivolous or unnecessary details. If she introduces something, it will come to play later in the story. For us tonight, I would like to suggest that when we read this introductory passage, and I'm really gonna focus our, our learning and our time together on this, this introductory line where John says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We're not gonna go into Jesus' baptism. We're not gonna study that this evening. I just want to think about this phrase because for the author of the book of John, this functions as sort of uh, as an example, I guess you could say, of Chekhov's gun. When you first see it hanging on the wall, you don't quite know what to do with this image, the Lamb of God. Now, I know for many of us, like we've been churched, we've spent a lot of time here, we have ideas as to what this means. We might think about sacrifice, we might think about um, the scapegoat in the Old Testament. We might think about a, a number of different things. For an ancient reader, they also had different ideas of what the Lamb of God denoted in this time. There was a, uh, something that was known as the apocalyptic or the eschatological lamb that would show up at the end and, and 
bring about destruction and havoc and, and right the wrongs of the world. We don't usually talk about that image, and that's more from the intertestamental period, not the Old Testament, not the New Testament, but the, the weird books in the middle there. They would have also thought perhaps about the sacrificial system. They, they would have gone back to the scapegoat uh, and the laying on of hands and sending out one goat into the wilderness. They would have thought about these sorts of things. They would have thought about uh, sacrificing at the temple. But as one scholar would say, in this understanding of the Lamb of God, specifically for the author of the book of John, there's a plethora of images that seem to shed light on the work of Jesus as portrayed in the book, and perhaps no single figure lies behind the description of Jesus as the Lamb of God. There's so many different things that are informing this passage that it's unclear what the author of the book of John is attempting to do. It is a rifle or a pistol hanging on the wall, and we don't quite know how to fit it into the story yet because there are so many potential images that are informing an ancient author audience when they're thinking through this passage. However, the author of John is no fool, and the author of John does not include frivolous or unnecessary details. The author of John is weaving together a beautiful and powerful and compelling story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So when John steps onto the scene and sees Jesus and says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, it might not make a lot of sense in that moment to the original hearers. We might import a lot of our ideas onto that phrase, but as we continue on in our study of the book, it will become clear, I would argue, how the author is attempting to use this phrase. And he does so in a way that is both ingenious and scandalous. You guys really aren't uh, getting my excitement over scandalous. You're supposed to respond, ooh, the scandal of the gospel. I'm really trying to coax you guys on here. There is a dominant or an informing image that is helping us to understand what the author of the gospel of John is attempting to do, but we have to see it in light of the whole. So I'm going to advance the storyline a bit, specifically to the end of the story of Jesus's life. If you've spent any amount of time in the church, and if you've had your ear to the ground of even culture, you know that Jesus's story ends in crucifixion and resurrection. For some of you in the room, you might not be able to have a faith claim on that yet. You might not be there to, to say, I believe that this happened. But the narrative of the Bible tells four different accounts of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, most people would describe the Gospels as passion narratives with extended introductions meaning the focus of these four stories are on those last acts in Jesus' life that culminate in his death on the cross. But the way that John tells this story is important and rich and, yes, a bit scandalous for us. Now, I want to show you what's happening here and, and point your attention to some things because you might not see it on your own. This is John chapter 19. It says, it was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about noon. Now remember Chekhov. He says, there are no frivolous or unnecessary details in a good story. 
And the author is alerting us both to the day and the time in what is about to happen. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Jesus has stood trial before Pilate, the ruler of the day. But the people, the Jewish people, want him to die. Pilate might also be invested in this because Jesus is a revolutionary and he's, he's causing some sort of revolt. Even though Pilate doesn't necessarily want to put him to death, the Jewish people say, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate presents him to the people and they say, get him out of here. We don't want him. We want you to kill him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. The chief priests answered. I don't know if you get this in, in terms of a first century Jewish mentality, but to claim that we have no king, not but God, not Messiah, but we have no king but Caesar, shout the highest religious leaders of the day. And it says, finally, Pilate handed Jesus over to them to be crucified. Now, the detail that I want you to be aware of and to see in this passage it was the day of preparation of the Passover. Another way to explain this is it was the day before the Passover. Another way of understanding this in an ancient first century Jewish mindset would be it was the day when Passover lambs were killed. There are no free motifs. There are no unnecessary or unimportant details added to a good story. The author of the book of John is telling us that when Jesus was being crucified in the larger Jewish landscape, it was the day in which the Passover lambs, the sacrificial lambs, were to be executed for the people. Now, for those of you that don't know, this goes back to, to an ancient tradition that is rooted in one of the most pivotal stories in the Jewish religion, that of the Exodus. We have a people of God in the midst of slavery and persecution and oppression, and they cry out to God saying, get us out of here. One of the most dramatic texts in the Old Testament, in my opinion, is when it says that God sees his people. He hears his people. And God knows. This launches into a rescue mission where God shows up and attempts to remove Israel from Egypt, from slavery and oppression and bondage, and eventually does so in a magnanimous way. After having uh, nine plagues against the Egyptian people, but yet their leaders say, we will not let these folks go. We will not yield to the God of the Israelites. We will continue to stay resolute in the tenth and final plague, which initiates this Jewish um, festival of Passover. We meet an image that might concern us, but here God says, I am going to go through the land and I'm going to take the firstborn of the Egyptians. In the text that Christy read earlier, we see the origins of the Passover festival. In Exodus chapter 12, it says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month. In other words, when I take the people out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery, out of oppression, it is to be a new start. 
We are going to wipe the slate clean and begin anew. It is to be the beginning of a new year. It's the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. The animals, skipping down to verse 5, the animals that you choose, they must be year-old males without defect. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all of the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. There's a lot of uh, discrepancy as to when twilight is. It could be anywhere from noon to 6 p.m. There's a, there's a large amount of time there. But they're supposed to slaughter this animal at twilight. Then they're to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they are, uh, where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat that's raw or boiled. We'll talk about that later on in the week. Do not leave any of it until morning. This is how you are to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. When this happens, Israel was to leave in a state of hurry because now was the time. But in order for Israel to leave, they must sacrifice a lamb, take the blood, and paint the door frame so that when God goes through the city, he would know who his people were. It's a strange story, but it's cloaked with imagery and symbolism, and it leads us to seeing God as one who is redeeming his people And this is what is being celebrated in the text that we see here in the book of John. I want you to see something because this is important for our understanding of what's going on in our text this evening. The Jewish reckoning of time is that when the sun goes down, it begins the day. So you go from sundown to sundown, and that is one day. In this scheme, you have the day of preparation, which begins, in a sense, the time of Passover, But Passover does not begin until the following sundown. So you can see here on the scale, you have the day of preparation that begins with sundown. Then you would sleep that night, wake up for the full day of preparation. And then after the sun goes down, you would celebrate Passover, the first moment of Passover, with a shared meal together. You would have this lamb that has been sacrificed. You would eat bitter herbs. You would eat unleavened bread. All going back to this moment in Israelite history when they had to leave their place of oppression and slavery in haste because God was doing a work and it would point them back to the moment when God redeemed his people in a miraculous display of power. This was something that happened yearly to remind the people who God was and how he cared for his folks. Now this is where it gets kind of interesting. In Matthew and Mark and Luke, The timing of Jesus' last few days is structured according to this scale. There was the day of preparation, and then the disciples and Jesus were in the upper room sharing together in a Passover feast. They would eat the lamb, they would eat the unleavened bread, they would share some wine, they would be together celebrating the Passover. That's something that has been done for centuries and centuries, pointing back to God's redemptive work in the people's lives. 
This is where we get the first institution of communion, where Jesus passes the bread amongst his people saying, this is my body that's broken for you. And he passes the wine and says, this is my blood that is shed for you. And he is, he is piggybacking, if you will, on Passover imagery, saying the sacrifice that was made, it will be me. In the Synoptic Gospels, in Matthew and Mark and Luke, the Passover meal is shared by Jesus and the disciples in the upper room. And then the next day, which is the first day of Passover, Jesus is crucified. There are no free motifs, no unnecessary details or frivolous details in a good story. And what the author of the Gospel of John does is he moves this structure and this scheme back one day. So Jesus and his disciples, they gather together on the evening, the beginning of the day of preparation. They're together, and it's the night that Jesus was betrayed, and the same sort of thing. They're sharing the bread, and they're sharing the wine, and Jesus is instituting this communion meal but then the next day, around the time of twilight, when the lambs were to be sacrificed, the author of the book of John has moved this structure so that when Jesus is hanging on the cross, potentially it was the same time in which the sacrificial Passover lambs were being killed in an act of symbolism to demonstrate the redemptive power of God that began way back when the scandal is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do not agree on the time in which Jesus died, but the author of the book of John is motivated theologically to demonstrate the beautiful truth that Jesus functions as the Passover lamb. The one who makes us look back to God's redemptive work over all time and climaxing in this moment is offered for our protection, for our deliverance, for our redemption. One scholar says, in John, Jesus' crucifixion, it takes place on the day of preparation for Passover, not on the day of Passover itself, as in the Synoptic Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The effect of this chronological shift is to align Jesus' death with the slaughter of the Passover lambs. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist shows up and says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and the rifle is hung on the wall, but it is not fired until the end of the book in which Jesus dies. In an act of sacrifice, in an act of um, redemption for his people, when this imagery begins to make sense, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In chapter 1, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but towards the end of the book, we start to see how John, the poet, the prophet, the beautiful author, is hanging these details together. But it's not just the thing that we see in the, chron the chronological scheme being shifted. There's other details introduced in John's story the hyssop branch. It's a detail that isn't quite clear for us because we don't care too much. 
However, in the Old Testament, it says that when you take the blood of the sacrifice and you paint the doorframe, the thing that you use is a hyssop branch. In John's gospel, this is the only gospel that includes this detail. Jesus is hanging on the cross, and in one of his final acts, he says, I am thirsty. The author says that this is to fulfill scripture. Nobody knows quite what scripture he's fulfilling, but Jesus says, I am thirsty, and they take a hyssop branch, and they offer him wine mixed with vinegar. And we see this detail that only John includes John, the author who has moved this chronology back in time to say that Jesus is being sacrificed on the day when the the lambs of Passover are being sacrificed, and now we have the introduction of a hyssop branch that has the wine mixed with vinegar that Jesus is to drink. All the other gospels have a different form in which that is being um, used, whether it's a reed or a pole of some sort, but John uses this detail to demonstrate again that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. In John chapter 19, we also hear that Jesus is on the cross, and in Roman practice, a way to speed up the death of people who were on the cross is to break their legs. In uh, crucifixion, you would be able to push yourself up on the cross in order to breathe. Most people die from asphyxiation. However, before Jesus' limbs are broken, he has already passed away, so he doesn't have to have his legs broken. It's a detail that might not be a big deal, except, again, for John, one of the only ones who includes this detail. It goes back to Passover, because when you offer a sacrificial lamb, it is to be without blemish. And in Exodus chapter 12, it says it is to be a lamb with no broken bones. Jesus, for the author of John, is the preeminent Passover lamb who is initiating a new, a new exodus. I'm trying to get to this quote that I have here. My computer's freaking out a bit. I apologize for that. Richard Hayes says, John's symbolic linkage of the crucifixion with the Passover, at last it explicates the meaning of John the Baptist's mysterious initial acclamation of Jesus as the Lamb of God. In other words, it's the rifle hanging on the wall that isn't fired until the end of the story. The reader who recalls the beginning of the evangelist story in the Gospel of John will now be able to read backwards and interpret this epithet. For John the evangelist, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, embodied in his death the true significance of the Passover and the Exodus events. One more, one more uh, slide here. N.T. Wright says, by the end of the story, John has made the meaning clear. The death of Jesus that takes place in this gospel, not in Matthew, not in Mark, not in Luke. On the afternoon when the Passover lambs were being killed in the temple, Jesus is the true Passover lamb. John wants us to understand the events concerning Jesus as a new and better Exodus story, this foundational text that the entire Jewish religion has looked back to to say this is how God delivers, this is how God redeems his people. Now Jesus is showing us a different way, a different way in which redemption happens. And we see this in this passage. He's a new and a better Exodus story, just as God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. So God was now bringing a new people out of an even older and darker slavery. And this occurs through Jesus, when we meet John the Baptist, he begins to put us on this trajectory, even though we can't fill in the blanks until we finish this story. 
Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We don't know what that means yet in the ancient Jewish world. They didn't quite grasp it. However, when Jesus is sacrificed on the cross, the author of the Gospel of John says this is the meaning behind it. And at the core, anyone in the room who identifies as Christian sees the power of this story. I think we usually see it in a way that doesn't resonate with folks. At least when I was growing up, the gospel was, hey, if you believe this, then you don't have to burn in hell for all of eternity. And we say, yippee. This is not what is being explicated in this passage. Jesus as the sacrificial lamb takes on our very worst and in an act of solidarity, he brings about a different way. I can't escape that, that verb. And this is just me here, so take it for what it's worth. It might just be a, a grain of salt you need to throw over your shoulder. But in the Old Testament, when it talks about forgiveness, the term that's used there commonly is the word that is to carry, to take on, to bear the wrongdoing that we commit for the sake of relationship. And John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God who takes on the sin of the world, our worst. Jesus takes it, puts it to death on the cross and says, I still want you. Keep throwing it at me. You can't be unworthy of my love. You can't do anything to make me say, I don't want you. The sacrificial lamb who in the Exodus story, whose blood is painted on the, the doorpost to identify a people, is still identifying a people today. It's interesting as well that in this passage, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes on or takes away the sins, not of the Jewish people, not of the folks with the right lineage, not of the folks with the right religious standards, not of the folks who say all the good things and do all the good practices and know all the rites and rituals, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in the book of John, this is a crack to the door for an inclusive gospel that speaks to us and says, at a point when we were not written into the story, Jesus puts his shoulder to the door and says, I want even you. My hope tonight is that regardless of where you are, man, when you guys come into this space, I know that you bring a lot of baggage, whether it's the hurt that we have perpetrated against you or your neighbor has perpetrated against you or the conversations you've had with others that you're wearing, that you hear in the back of your mind, the fact that you can't get over that you are unworthy or unlovable or unwantable. You can't hear the gospel in terms of it's for the world and it's for you. And, and Jesus takes your very worst and he nails it to the cross and says, you can't do anything that will shake this love and this commitment that I have for you, you might be wearing the weight that says, I can't accept that. My hope tonight, though, is that you begin to see the radical love with which Jesus has for his people, for us, and that that might be something that transforms who we are and how we live and the things that we do and the things that we say. I can't also hear this passage without dipping into our current state of affairs. And if this is something that's going to step on toes, I do not apologize. Listen to it anyway. If you have Twitter 
and you see what's going on, you're, you're inundated with the hashtag of why I didn't report. You have people who, are, who have endured sexual abuse to, a, to an atrocious level and have stories with which they felt that they could not say anything to anybody or they said something to someone and were unheard. And when I think about the gospel and the way that that has, pre has been presented to people, we usually don't make space for folks who have a real barrier towards the gospel. The way that it's been presented does not honor the suffering that people have gone through, which is a, a, so beyond my, my rationale because what we see in the gospel is Jesus who suffers who understands, who identifies with you, who has felt rejection and shame and hurt. And the gospel is not something that we accept based on fear and what might happen to us if. The gospel is the good news of here and now that Jesus wants to bring about restitution and reconciliation and bring you to a place of wholeness. And that doesn't always happen supernaturally. That, 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 that happens through the work of God's people interceding and putting an arm around those who are in the midst of their own trials and tragedies and hurt. And if the church isn't a safe place for people to, to talk about sexual abuse, if the church isn't a safe place where people can say, I've been hurt, I've been accosted, I've been uh, the victim of prejudice or abuse or what have you, if this place can't be a place where we say, let me point you to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and not only takes away the sin of the world, but has felt the sin of the world against him, then what are we doing May we be a people that not only understand the gospel, may we be a people who apply the gospel, who live a transformed life, who become the hands and feet of Jesus, no matter how cliche that has been. May we be someone else's safe space. May we be a place where people can be pointed back to the Lamb of God who takes away and who has felt the sins of the world. May we remember that. May we be able to connect these dots where the life of commitment that we have and the way that we follow Jesus, may it impact those around us who have felt hurt. May it impact those around us who are suffering. May it also release from our minds even momentarily. May we return to this beautiful truth that God does not deem us to be unworthy of love. We have done our worst and God still says, you are mine. May we live in light of that and may we share that with those around us. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, mine and yours, the Lamb of God who identifies with your pain and with your suffering because he's felt it, the Lamb of God who is invested, who wants nothing but to be in relationship with you and to move you towards wholeness, and he wants to use us in that process. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. 
Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.